I can think of a handful of things like that, where there was some opportunity that looking back, I said, you know, that was actually a really big deal. And I kind of either through laziness or arrogance or something, just like didn't prepare enough or didn't treat it like a, like a precious thing enough. And then I regret that later. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Tim Urban. Tim is best known as the writer and illustrator behind the incredibly popular blog, Wait But Why, which has garnered millions of unique page views and famous fans like Elon Musk. His deeply researched long-form posts on everything from artificial intelligence to procrastination buck the conventional wisdom that internet writing should be short or SEO-optimized to be successful. A former film composer and professional tutor, Tim has parlayed his conversational writing style into a sideline of speaking engagements. His 2016 TED Talk on procrastination has been viewed more than 30 million times. You can subscribe to posts from Tim at waitbutwhy.com. In the episode, Tim and I discuss how Tim wrote a 90-page college thesis in only 72 hours. We talk about strategies for overcoming procrastination. We discuss what motivated Tim to give up his music career to become a professional blogger, how Tim developed his writing craft in the sandbox of blogging. We discuss the value of experimentation, having fun, and drawing stick figures. Why Tim ignores the short and sweet blogging format and writes long uh, and often book-length blog posts. What he learned from failing to take advantage of a big opportunity in Hollywood, what exciting trends and technologies and psychology may end up in future Wait But Why posts, and so much more. In the episode, Tim also answers a couple of questions from members of the Inner Circle, which is my membership community. The two questions that came from them were, where do you get ideas for your blog, and how do you pick a popular topic but avoid repeating someone else's rants on the same issue? If you're interested in joining the Inner Circle and posing questions for future Famous Failures guests, you can head on over to ozanvarol.com forward slash membership. Before I play the interview, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter called The Weekly Contrarian. It goes out to nearly 14,000 subscribers and it shares with you an article that I wrote that week along with recommendations for books, tools, other articles, quotes, really anything that challenges conventional wisdom and hopefully helps you look at the world a little differently. You can sign up for that by heading over to weeklycontrarian.com. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, um, which is called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tim Urban. And thank you, as always, for listening. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So take us back to your senior year at Harvard, please. You had to write a senior thesis to graduate, and you started this thesis, which ended up being 90 pages long, just three days before it was due, and then you somehow finished it in in 72 hours. So tell us more about that, please. Why did you wait until three days it was due, and how did you manage to write 90 pages in 72 hours? Yeah, I, I wish I had a good reason that I waited. I wish I, um, you know, it was all part of a plan that I had figured out a faster way to do something. But no, it was just too big and 
icky a project. And every time I would you know, sit down to work on it, it was just like this big daunting thing. And I would always just think, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do that later today, or I'll do that tomorrow. Or, well, now it's the morning, I'm kind of groggy, I can't do it now. Oh, it's like the afternoon, I'm a little like tired. Uh, it, you know, it was always just some reason. And so that then it turns into a month and then two weeks. And then I still kind of felt like I kind of just felt like I could still somehow pull it off because I thought I could write, you know, I don't know, two pages, an hour, and I, I could pull an all nighter. And it ended up being three days before like the complete true panic hit. Uh, and that's when the really bad, basically you can judge how bad a procrastinator is by how much panic is needed to get them to do stuff. And for me, it's very high. So I finally hit the meter of panic when I then suddenly just freaked out and started working on it, just started typing. And um, yeah, I wrote it in three days, handed in a highly subpar thesis that, um, <laughs> sorry, that two professors had to read. And uh, and that was that. It was it was quite the time. I did graduate, though. It did because I, I wouldn't have graduated if I hadn't handed it in on time. So at least there is the bare minimum graduation thing that happened. So we're going to be jumping all over the place. But, you know, fast forward some years, but you gave this wildly popular TED talk about procrastination, which we'll link to in the in the show notes. So how has your relationship with procrastination evolved since you finished that thesis in, in 72 hours? You know, I would say I've maybe 30% better than I was then, uh, a, a little bit more in control, but not that much more than that. I mean, if anything, you know, I, I may be kind of the same as I was. It's hard to know. The thing that has made it actually a worse problem, though, since then is that the procrastinator's best friend is deadlines. Because with a deadline, at least your problem is contained. It's like if I had, I don't know, if I had a problem eating something too much, and then I, it's like a deadline means I'm like allergic to that thing at some point. So I, you know, it makes me sick. So it, that would help you not eat the thing you don't want to eat. Well, in this case, like a deadline forces structure upon procrastinator and kind of there's like the deadlines, like the adult in the room that is going to make you do it, whether you like it or not. Since college, I haven't had many deadlines because I just haven't had jobs that have been deadline, you know, the, the, the type that have them. So I have been much more at the whim of this problem. And I've been kind of like, you know, there's no adult in the room to force it. And so it's been something that I've had to learn to manage more myself. And in doing so, I've gotten to understand it a lot better. It's, it's complicated. It's like some combination of perfectionism, you know, super high expectations and laziness. There's definitely just some general laziness. There's um, then just the child in me that wants instant gratification that's still living in me somewhere. Like uh, there's just this, just, just <laughs> this child that just wants something that is perfectible, that is instantly enjoyable and wants to just make the decision in any given moment to do something that's more fun. So I'm battling a lot of, uh, there's a lot of internal characters that I'm trying to manage. And I'm, I'm getting better as I understand myself better. But it's, um, it's, it is a struggle every day. But you know, you, you said you have gotten 30% better, which is a, you know, which is an admirable, significant improvement. For those in the audience who also struggle with procrastination, and who don't necessarily have any strict deadlines to contend with, what strategies have you found useful in, in getting started and overcoming some of these barriers that you mentioned, like perfectionism and, and laziness and, and the desire for instant gratification? So there's, I would say, two general categories of strategy. 
that you can you can go with. One is kind of the more obvious and short term fix thing that's not necessarily you know it's something that can cure the symptom but not necessarily the disease. And this is basically one of the characters in my talk that I that you referenced uh, is the the panic monster, which is for me the thing that the guy that. If he's here, then I'll get stuff done. Um, but panic has to be real panic. It can't be fake panic. It can't be, it has to be something where I'm truly like scared of my situation right now. Like this is really, really bad. Like that, that level. So you can create a fake panic monster. You know, just say you wanted to write a, 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 an album. You wanted, you're, you're an inspiring musician. That's the exact kind of thing that procrastinators just, they just won't do it. It's just too amorphous and icky and the pressure is high. So you can do something like, say, you know, invite 40 people to a sh show where you're going to put on, you know, you're going to perform your album in three months from today. You book the place non-refundable. You send out the email. Okay, you just created like a true panic monster. Or my equivalent as a writer is would be I would I would make a promise about a deadline. I try not to, and I because I, I hate breaking promises, and I still do. That's how like much legit panic I need. Like. It has to be something where it's, but you know, but if you make a public promise, that kind of thing, you've some people, um, they put money on it. So they, they're forced to donate money some of it somewhere they don't want to donate. There's ways you can kind of create that external pressure. Um, there's also kind of apps where they can be the adult in the room, which is, um, for me, like an app like freedom, or there's an app called forest where there's a little tree that grows and it, it kind of, uh, you know, you can't like use your phone while it's growing. So there's apps that actually will like, like an adult, it's almost parental controls on yourself. You'll like, you know, you'll schedule parental controls on your future self during what you know was, should be a work session. There's nothing you can do with these apps to fix it. This is kind of the brute force method. Then I would say the other category um, of strategy is trying to actually get into your head. And because it's, it's not like what you're trying to do is so incredibly hard. Usually once you're actually working, it's just work, you know, work is hard, but you know, you can do it. And it's also that, you know, the adult in your head really wants to do what it actually makes sense to be doing. It doesn't actually, you know, it doesn't even feel good to be procrastinating usually because you, you, you hate yourself while you're doing it. So there's something weird going on when you're acting against your own self-interest and you can try to get into your own psychology. And I, I imagine it's a little different for everyone what's actually going on, but try to almost have conversations with the different voices, the different impulses in your head. And you know, you have something like um, this impulse to procrastinate, you know, write down what, 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 what was the emotion you're feeling you know, right before you felt that impulse. Near Eyal's book, Indistractable, uh, his new book coming out, I, I recently read an advanced copy and he talks about that, how, if, you know, actually just notice, just actually pay attention to what is going on in your head, these pathways that are, that are there, that, that are kind of looping uh, and it happened again and again. And if you understand them, you may be able to manage them better. So I think that's the ideal thing is then you can actually fix the disease and not just the symptom, but at least, you know, the other, the, the, the more brute force thing is good for people while they're working on it. Just two things that I want to add slash underscore. First, some of the short-term fixes you mentioned, you know, reminded me of the, the story of Ulysses and the, and the sirens. It's almost like, well, you know that the sirens are going to be singing somewhere down the line. And so you make sure to cover your ears with, with beeswax. In, in, in the case of Ulysses, in our case, it's, you know, if you know that you're going to be distracted by certain things, it's, it's setting rules ahead of time. It's almost these like chains you're imposing on your drunk self, but you're imposing them when you're sober. 
and you're able to make better decisions. And that happens through apps like Freedom and, and Forest. Um, and let me just underscore the recommendation for Nier's book, Indistractable 2. I'm actually looking at a, just a copy on my bookshelf right now. Uh, it's an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. It actually should have come out by the time this interview is published, and we'll include a note to that in the show notes as well. So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your other passion in life, which is music. I mean, most people think of you as, as, an, as an author, a blogger, but after college, you actually moved to Los Angeles to start writing movie scores. I'd love to hear more about that part of your life and how you um, ended up eventually pivoting to writing. I knew in college, uh, you know, I wanted to do something in kind of where I was creating stuff. I was interested in both music and writing, and I wasn't sure where to go with those because I, I didn't really want to do a band necessarily. I'm not much of a singer. I don't really like writing lyrics, uh, but I wanted to, I love composing music itself. And then I also kind of liked writing, but I didn't know what, you know, what to do with that. I didn't know what I wanted to write. So I started, I decided to just had to choose and I chose uh, film scoring as, as a first option, which is kind of a, uh, you know, a way that you can have a living without writing lyrics and write without writing songs, but you can still write really good, good stuff. And, um, and so I did that for a little a massive procrastination problems. That is like an awful, awful match for a procrastinator that career, because <laughs> early on, you're just writing a bunch of things that you have to create yourself. You have to basically go out and meet young student directors and schmooze with them and start, you know, doing their movies, you know, for free. And it's just like, that is exactly the kind of thing I would like push to next week and again and again and again. So I, I did write a handful of film scores and I enjoyed it. The thing that, other than the fact that it's an awful match for a procrastinator, and, and, until you get things going and then you have hardcore deadlines and it's very actually a good match. The thing that really uh, made me want to switch over to writing was the fact that I felt like film scoring was great for people who are movie buffs kind of first and musicians second in a way, where they love being part of a movie and they're so excited to enhance movies and work with the director and all of that. And it's quite bad for people who fancy themselves uh, this great composer who writes this great stuff. And, and, and then the movie is just this necessary evil to kind of like promote it. <laughs> That's an awful match because um, you, you, you're, like, you're like livid when the dialogue goes over your music um, in that movie. And I was already starting and the deck director's cutting up the music. And I said, you know, what? this hurts me. Uh, and that's not a good thing, I think. I don't, I don't really care about movies that much. So, so I, I got out. I think that was probably the right decision. Um, and writing felt a little more, you know, the thing I'm doing is the product, not the enhancement of the product. So I, I like that more. Absolutely. Now, Wait But Why was not your first blog. Is that right? Correct. Can you tell us about your first blog and how similar it was or different it was from Wait But Why? Uh, it's called Underneath the Turban, which is a play on my name. Um, I, yeah, wasn't was not that well thought out. I, uh, I, I was basically it was 2005, and uh, my friend sent me like a blog post he did on his new blog. It was on just the site Blogger, but I was blown away that he like knew how to put something onto the internet. Like at the time, it wasn't easy to do that, and I was like, I was like, this is like I, can't, I couldn't believe. It. I was like looking at a real site with like headings and sidebars that he did. It was this, you know, it seems so obvious now back then it was like kind of impressive and it was like kind of hard, but this is why blogger was such a big deal because it, it actually made it super easy, like 2019 easy back in 2005 when things usually weren't easy like that. So I, I immediately started, I got my own site, started just putting up short little blog posts whenever I felt like it. And um, I really liked it. It was like, there was no, it was a nice, no pressure project because at the time I, I, I was film scoring and I was also, I was running a small company that I started. 
those are the things I was supposed to be doing. And so it was really nice kind of thing I didn't have to do that I, that no one was making me do. So therefore it kind of qualified as in kind of the instant gratification monkey in my head, part of it is fun thing, not as work. So I, I gravitated toward that and I ended up writing a ton of blog posts, very short, especially compared to what I write today, just kind of thoughts, lists, things that happened to me that day. Uh, and it was just a big sandbox. There was no pressure, didn't take it that seriously. And because of that, I was prolific and I wrote all the time. <laughs> and at the time, it didn't feel important because it just seemed like a silly side project. But actually, because I uh, write full time today, I look back at it as kind of the time when I kind of honed my chops. Like I found my voice throughout that. And I can kind of see the voice develop throughout those posts. And I just started to kind of get comfortable as a writer. And, you know, I wrote like 300 blog posts over like six year span. So it ended up being a very um, valuable thing for me without kind of me realizing it at the time. Had I realized it was valuable, I probably would have never done it and would have procrastinated on it. So it was, uh, it was good. It was fun. I like the way that you refer to it as a sandbox, this playground where you got to develop your voice, because I think a lot of people might look at Wait But Why and the type of audience you have now. I mean, the last I checked, there were over 500,000 people on your on your email list might look at that and, and say, well, this is like amazing that he was able to do this so quickly. But, you know, they haven't seen version 1.0, which was underneath the, the turban and the experience you had with that and how your voice voice developed over time. Are there particular lessons, you know, aside from just sort of improving the quality of your writing that you took away from your experience with that first blog? Again, because it was blogging and I didn't think of myself as writing, I didn't think of myself as a writer. It was mm -hmm. almost like I was writing it, like the tone I would have when I was writing a funny email to a friend telling them a story or something. Right. And so I realized is that like, you don't really have to do more than that to be a writer. Like I still don't think of myself as like a, a writer, you know, I write the way I talk as much as I can. So I'm not even trying really to write as an art form. I'm more, you know, trying to get my thinking across in kind of a fun way. And so I realized, I think I learned on, on that blog that like, you can do that and that's fine. People still might read it. And it's not like, it, that's not a bad thing. People actually like that a lot of the time. And then, you know, another thing like just experimenting around because it was kind of a sandbox. One day I decided to like, there was um, some idea I wanted to get across and I just decided, well, what if I, I, if I could just sketch this, it would be easier. I did a little like drawing. And even then I wasn't sure how to get like a drawing onto the blog, but I figured it out. It was the time it wasn't like that obvious, but put up like some basic stick figure drawings to like illustrate some points and people really liked it. And so I was like, okay. And, and I kind of liked it too. Cause I was like, it was way better explained with this little drawing than it would have been if I had typed it out and, and funnier. So I so that was kind of toward the end of this old blog, but I started doing that a lot. And that was one of the things that I realized that I was a good match for my writing and I like doing it. And so now all of my posts have a ton of drawings. And I, I, that's one of the things I kind of discovered in the sandbox. And I think what you're saying applies not just to writing, but really anything that you do in life, the value of experimentation and, and doing it in a small scale. So like, even if you fail, you're failing gracefully without the entire system breaking down. I mean, I do this from time to time while I'll, I'll segment my audience. I now have a membership program, which is a lot smaller than my, my general email list. And I'll run things by them or I'll, I'll experiment with them, ask questions to them, run polls and whatnot. And I can test things with them that I wouldn't necessarily want to put out to the type of email list I have now, but that allows me to experiment and develop certain ideas before they're ready to to go out into into the wild. And I think that applies uh, far beyond just, just writing itself. 
When you decided to start Wait But Why, if you went to a seasoned blogger at the time and you said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about starting this new blog, what advice do you have for me? My guess is that they probably would have said, write short blog posts and post them frequently. You decided to do the exact opposite of that. You write book-length posts. Some of them are have multiple series, and you post them infrequently. How did you decide to, to buck conventional wisdom and, and settle on that approach? I didn't really make that decision before I started kind of defiantly or anything like that. I, 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 the beginning, I was trying to do regular posts. And I was actually very trying, you know, trying not to make them too long. I was very, I was like, you know, I would cut them and I would, I would, you know, I would just really work on trying to keep them as short as I could. This is like, again, the lesson a lot of the time, whether it's like entrepreneurship or arts or whatever, is like, it's when you're doing stuff that you discover things. You know, it's hard to just sit there before you start something and make all your, you know, your big decisions, which again, is part of the problem for procrastinators because they don't get to the doing phase. So they don't discover a lot of the things they could. But anyway, I was, you know, writing these posts and I noticed like the trend that, you know, not only were the longer ones, the ones where I was kind of cringing as I put it up because of the length. Uh, not only were they not getting fewer views, a lot of times they were they were doing better, and people you know could dig in a little more with the longer posts. And I'm sure a lot of people, most probably most people out there, would rather have something short. I might even be one of them. I don't really you know my attention span kind of short, but unless I'm like you know in full obsession about something, and then I can be the opposite. But I think a lot of people out there are um, craving kind of more depth to what they learn. Um, they really are learners. They're curious and. And that, that's a good match for the way I write because I'm curious. And when I am digging into something, I'll go deep. And then I, I, it's not satisfying for me to then only explain kind of a little of what I learned. I, I want to get the whole thing across. I want to bring readers to where I am. So um, whether it's explaining or just kind of going into the full depth of kind of a random theory or whatever, giving you know thorough examples about something, whatever it is, it's my instinct to kind of go more into depth and go longer. And I found through writing that there's a lot of readers out there who actually prefer that. And so once I realized that, then I dug in harder and I just said, okay, I'm going to write, I'm going to go into the full depth I want to here. I still, I still try to cut in the way that any good writer should cut, which is, you know, I try to cut when it's unnecessary. I don't want to waste the reader's time. I try to cut things that, that are redundant or that don't need to be there, all of that. But it's but the things I, I, I'm not cutting anymore are kind of, you know, tangential things that help fill in the gaps of the understanding of the, the topic or full explanations that go to the explanation behind the explanation behind the explanation or the, getting all the way there to, to build a foundation. I won't cut that anymore. As I did that, you know, and people kept continue to like it. I just, it turned into what it is where, which is now kind of these like, you know, what, what would be kind of short books or very, very crazy long articles. I think it's almost just like I kind of write short books that are on the internet in a way. Now, um, one thing that people should remember is that, Yes, people want short articles, but there's this whole industry of books out there and authors. Um, and th that's, those are longer than any article, and they get read by tons of people. So it's not like something long cannot be read. It's just not typical on the internet. You know, there's no reason to think it, it couldn't happen. And so I think Wait But Why is kind of nice evidence that people do want some more depth. This is one of the questions that came in from uh, one of my readers. I, I told them I was going to interview you and they asked two related questions, but here we go. Where do you get ideas for your blog and how do you pick a popular topic, but avoid repeating someone else's rant on the same issue? Yeah, no, good question. So as far as ideas, I'm a curious person. I'm always learning new things or 
coming across new things on the internet or in conversations. And, and basically now, as because this is my job, anytime I'm, you know, I have an ongoing growing list. And when a new topic comes up, or I'm talking to someone, or I think about something, or I think of something I used to always think about, I'll just write it on the list. And then when it's time to write a new post, I'll take a big look at the list. And usually I'll write, uh, now it's been, you know, I've been doing a really long post for a while, but you know, when I'm writing more frequently, I just usually want to kind of mix it up. I don't want to do too much of the same kind of post because I get sick of that kind of thing. Plus, I don't want Wapawa to become pigeonholed where everyone just expects that this is the one thing it does. So I try to mix it up, but I trust that if I think something is interesting or funny or compelling, then my readers will too, because I think that a blog attracts people that have similar interests and tastes to you. And then as far as this very good question about like when there's something that you're writing about that is well-trodden on the internet, how do you not just write something that that's already been said? Um, and so most of what I write about is stuff that has been written about. I mean, I'm, I'm rarely breaking any news or like, you know, I have a couple times talked about a pretty new technology, you know, one of the first blogs to kind of really get into it. But most of the time I'm writing about something that has been talked about plenty. And I don't worry too much about it. What I don't do is I don't read a ton of other people's writing about what I'm writing about as I'm doing it, because I don't, I don't want too much of those influences. I have to do a lot of research. So I end up reading a lot. But you know, I won't read like a fun explainer as often as I'll read just like kind of hard research or things like that. Um, so that so that, I, that doesn't kind of creep into my own product. But but most of the time, I just know that like, my style of doing things is, is, is a certain way. And it's not going to be that much like all the other ones that are out there. It might resemble in some ways, but it has, it's going to have lots of visuals. It's going to be explained with my voice um, using kind of the metaphors I like to use. And usually that's plenty. If you just kind of present something that's, especially the things that you don't think are being explained that well, usually to the point where usually I had some fog about it, which is why I often got into it in the first place, then probably um, a lot of other people are actually wishing they had a better explanation. And some people like the topic and they don't mind reading multiple things about it. And they, they can't get enough of a topic, you know, and then something that you write that's really thorough about it, they're thrilled. So I, I have a lot of things like that, where I'll read about something like astronomy or space. I'll read a thousand things about it. I can't get, I can't read enough times, you know, the comparisons of the different sizes of stars or something. It's just like very interesting to me. So I just know there's a lot of people who love the topic who will like it, or people who feel like nothing they've read has quite done it for them, that they might like it. I don't concern myself too much with it. If I, if I do borrow something very specifically from something else, I always try to cite it to make sure I don't accidentally or intentionally plagiarize anything. So I always try to you know make sure I give credit if I'm taking something very directly. But otherwise, I don't worry too much about it. And so far, it hasn't been a problem. I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, because one of the barriers to getting started when it comes to writing is this inherent desire to write something new, to write something original. I really struggled with this in my early years in, in academia when I was first starting out. And before I got tenure, it's like, well, I have to, you know, make some contribution to my field. But, you know, you keep researching and researching and it's like everything that I was interested in had been written about already. And I was envious of academics in like, I don't know, the 18th century and the 19th century when they were writing, they were actually writing something that necessarily hadn't been written about before. But now it's like really hard to find something that's going to be brand new. But then once you let go of that pressure and realize that telling a story through your own voice is original in and of itself. And if you can find a slightly different angle than what's been covered before, great. But I think that's important to keep in mind. Otherwise, this pressure to be original, in my experience, can be 
quite paralyzing because it really raises the barrier to entry to so high that it just, you know, if you're already a procrastinator too, it'll just make it worse. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you, you know, you know, there's a lot of explanations out there, but the only evidence you need that there still needs to be more is just how, how little is understood, how many topics are foggy in most people's heads. And, and therefore there's always room for good explainers. Um, that, that that's, we're far away from that being oversaturated. Or you can look at stand-up comics who all take on the same topics, but it's the fact that they do it in their own way with their own sense of humor, with their own presentation is what makes it special. It's not saying, oh, I've heard marriage jokes before. Like, well, I'm not going to watch this. No one says that because <laughs> what they care about is actually how it's being presented. So I feel like it's a little similar. Since the show is about failure, I'd love to ask this question. What's been one of the most valuable failures in your life and, and what makes it valuable? I don't know exactly how I would define the word, but I feel like as an experimenter, I spent kind of most of my 20s in a lot of ways, you know, trying and failing, whether failing because I didn't like something that I thought I wasn't like or failing because the product wasn't good. Or, But I, I feel like I, I did a lot of experimentation, whether it was in business or in writing or music or some, some other kind of art. So, you know, I, to think about like a specific one, I had an opportunity to work with a big producer, music producer named Glenn Ballard. Someone sent some of my music I'd written to his uh, assistant who sent it to him and he liked it. He asked me to come in and I played him some stuff on the piano and he liked it. And he said, let's do an album together. And it was like this dream. I then went in when it was time to actually do it. And I hadn't, you know, I just hadn't prepared enough. And I, I, did, I feel like I wasted that opportunity a little bit. And I feel like I can think of a handful of things like that where, you know, there was some opportunity that looking back, I said, you know, that was actually a really big deal. And I kind of either through laziness or arrogance or something, just like didn't prepare enough or didn't treat it like a, like a precious thing enough. And then I regret that later. And so I, now I, I'm sure I still do it, but I think I do it a little less. I try to, you know, a little bell goes off in my head when it's some, something, you know, happens when I say, you know, this is something that is important. This is going to 10 years from now, you're going to be still thinking about however this goes. Like a TED Talk is an example, which is there's a whole different level of preparation you can do for something that really matters. And I have to overcome your procrastination in those moments. So I think I've gotten a little better at doing those things. You know, nothing's worse than regrets. And it's those opportunities that you don't capitalize on, especially when it's, it was in your control and, you know, you messed up that will stick with you. And it's the almost the regret itself is worse than the lost opportunity. And so I try to avoid those things uh, in the future. Since you mentioned your, your TED Talk and getting ready for it, how did you prepare for the TED Talk? Because a lot of people, you know, TED Talks are really popular. They see the they see the finished product. And as I mentioned, yours is wildly popular. How did you go about preparing for it? I've done more talks now, but at the time I, have, I hadn't done that many. So I, I was also kind of an amateur speaker. So there was a lot to do. Um, and I for sure also procrastinated, ironically, because <laughs> it was also about procrastination, but I did. I was definitely behind where I should have been the whole time. I had already written a blog post about this topic. And so I kind of looked at the blog post and thought about, you know, what's going to translate well the talk. I knew I was going to use slides. So I started thinking about what's going to translate visually. And then I knew it was just a TED, it was a, it was a TED talk. So you, you need to have a, a bigger message in there too. So I was starting to just think, but I, but I didn't want to have solutions to procrastination. It wasn't going to be how to fix procrastination because if I knew I wouldn't be a procrastinator at some point in my life, I hope I know. In which case, I'll do a great doc on how to fix, how to, how to, how to conquer procrastination. At the moment, I, it would have been disingenuous and not, not valuable for anyone because I don't, I don't have the answer. So instead, I thought, but what can I do here is I can explain the problem 
in a way that um, procrastinators will nod and say, yep. And, and non-procrastinators might understand their procrastinating friends and family members a little better. And then I can at least can stress that this is a serious problem. This is not a joke. It's a real problem and, it, and it's urgent. And it's something that does need to be addressed and fixed and time, you know, life is short. So I, I at least can try to explain the problem and then stress that it's an important problem. So that's what I did. And then I wrote out a script. Of course, it was way too long at first and I had to like cut it a bunch of times. But you know, with a TED talk, you want to memorize, unlike other talks. So I, I then it was a whole memorization process. And then I would change something, which was awful because I had memorized the old version. So it was not easy or fun. But, um, but in the end, you know, it came together. And I'm happy I put all the time I did into it because 10 years ago, Tim would have said, you know, I already written about this. And I, this, is, this is like my topic. I know how to talk about this. I don't need to prep that much. And that would have been a huge mistake. So like, I think something like this other experience that I just referenced, I think that kind of helped me in situations like this, like, you know, take it, take it dead seriously. We're coming to the end of our time here, Tim, but I do want to ask you um, one last question because you're such a naturally curious person and I'm sure you've got multiple items on your list right now, but what jumps to mind as like what you're finding most exciting right now that you're researching or you're thinking about what topic jumps to mind? Well, exciting. Uh, I wrote about brain-machine interfaces a couple of years ago when the company Neuralink launched. Uh, that was super fascinating. I mean, it's always emerging technology, which is just riveting and so exciting, and whether that's VR or self-driving cars or you know, new advances in AI or CRISPR. Right? There's so many things to be excited about there. On the kind of psychological front, I'm thinking a lot about how we think and how we come up with our viewpoints and and, you know, thinking about dogma and why we're all so prone to fall for it and to believe more than we should and to feel conviction that we haven't earned with our knowledge. And, and why are we so bad at this? And I think a lot of it goes back to the environment we were optimized for, which is not one where truth really mattered. It was one where kind of conviction mattered and unity with your tribe and stuff. So I think that that's causing a lot of problems today in politics. You know, you can just see it all over the place. Uh, and so I'm, I'm digging into that right now. And I, I find that to be important and compelling, if a little maddening at times. Absolutely. And with the 2020 elections uh, coming up in the U.S., it's a very, <laughs> very timely topic to be to be thinking about and, and writing about. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, so much fun. If people uh, will put links in the show notes to everything that we mentioned, including a link to Wait But Why and how to sign up for your email list. But are there any other things that you want to share with the audience if people want to find you online anywhere else that they should go? No, uh, just Wait But Why is where all my stuff lives. Yeah, the email address is the best way to keep up. So yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. All right. Thanks, Adam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. 
as always, thank you for listening and see you next time.